You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. You'd better quit while you're ahead before they find out you are a fraud. Chances are you've heard those words before. And you know what's weird? No one said them to you. You said them, or a variation of them, to yourself. Come on, admit it. Most human beings with skills and talent who are trying to accomplish something have experienced imposter syndrome. I certainly have, and I still do from time to time. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I have found that one of the most powerful and enjoyable ways to grow, expand, and enrich our lives is to read great books. And our sponsor, Audible, has made that easy and fun for you by offering you an audiobook of your choice absolutely free that you can download at their website, www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. You get to choose the book that you want from more than 180,000 titles, and you get access for a month to all of Audible services absolutely free. When you get something of value from this podcast, go to iTunes Look for the title, Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Leave a brief review and a rating for the show. A great way to pay this forward and to create more visibility and share this with more people. Keep your comments coming about what you're enjoying and also what you'd like to see in the show going forward. Send your comments to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is an expert on imposter syndrome. She had it, she faced it head on, fought it, and won. Now she helps others win the battle against this demon that creates limiting stories for all of us. She's a successful business executive who made her mark in the male-dominated transportation and logistics industry. She's a self-proclaimed reformed corporate burnout who took control of her life and wrote a book about her journey to help others defeat their inner imposter. Her book's title is Own Your Brilliance, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome for Career Success. Get ready to feel inspired and empowered as you listen to Michelle Gomez. Michelle, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here, Louis, and a big hello to the storytellers out there. Thank you for having me. And aren't we all storytellers? 
We certainly are. If we're willing to, to just stand in it and tell it, it can make an impact. And that's what I'm here to do. Wonderful. Can you describe for us what your definition is of imposter syndrome? Well, my definition is actually very close to that of uh, the people who coined the phrase, which is um, Dr. Pauline Rose Clancy and Dr. Imez of Georgia State University when they coined this phrase back in 1982. It's it's basically a, a behavioral phenomenon experienced by highly competent individuals where they have difficulty internalizing their success and instead feeling like frauds, phonies that are undeserving of their success. And so my caption of that is a difficulty to own your brilliance. Mm. Now, here's what's curious. It seems to be a universal phenomenon, right? Experienced by over 70% of the population. So yes, I would actually, the word universal is pretty spot on. So why do you think it happens to people? I believe it happens because um, a lot of times we struggle to believe in ourselves or believe in the work that we've done. And, and we, we allow or expect external validation because we have a fear of validating ourselves. It's almost like we have a hard time believing that we are as competent, as talented, as gifted as we are. Um, and the only way we can give ourselves permission to believe that is if the outside world validates it. I agree with that. But I would I want to ask again, let's why do you think people feel that way? Why should we feel that way? What is it about us that makes us feel that way? I think we have a hard time connecting with people that we feel are brilliant. So when we, look at something or some or some something that someone's created an individual who is brilliant you know we think of people like Steve Jobs and uh, Oprah Winfrey and all the, Sheryl Sandberg all these amazing people and we think oh, we could never <laughs> that could never be me I, I couldn't do anything like that and when you actually accomplish things but that's what we think is above us right but there's people that haven't experienced or been or accomplished the things that you have done. And they look at you in the same regard. They might look at Lewis and say, wow, Lewis started a podcast. Like, man, I could I could never do that. Like, I don't have I don't have what it takes to build a podcast and actually put it out there. That's amazing. And it's that level of distance from one another. We create the space between ourselves and greatness that already disqualifies our our achievement or even thought behind an achievement that um, that creates this experience. Like we we feel everyone else around us is a real deal. Like they're like someone can look at you and say, Lewis is a real deal. This guy knows his stuff. And and then could disqualify ourselves as phonies or frauds for even trying. I I agree with that again. Do you think that this has to do with that it's built right into the story of the culture that we have all grown up in. I think it's there's certainly some messaging that we've received in uh, just the psychological realm of achievement. So people in academics, people in um, corporate or entrepreneurial endeavors, um, there's certain messaging sometimes where things are elevated to an extent where they seem unreachable. 
Mm. You know, um, I um, like I, I just completed my MBA in December, but I got to tell you, you asked me seven, eight years ago if I was going to get my MBA, I, I would have told you, oh, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I could ever do anything like that or even write a book. Um, and I think over time, when we start to understand our brilliance has a purpose, we get to close that gap between ourselves and that level of greatness and things start to become a little more attainable. But I, you know, there's so much imagery and messaging of no, we're, we're, what we're up here to do this, we're special. And so the, the fear behind thinking that you're that special, that you can do something like that is why people experience these things. They feel like aiming that high comes with a level of fear that people don't want to face. Hasn't it also been culturally made into a taboo? Interesting. How, how, do, how so? Can you give me your perspective on that? Yeah. Well, for instance, as a child, most kids, um, I'll certainly speak uh, to my, my upbringing. I had great parents, but the message that I kept getting from them and from the, even from the teachers that I went, that uh, were in the school, was to be humble and if you stepped up and blew your own horn, so to speak, that you were then labeled as arrogant, as cocky, and that the good kids are the kids who, you know, kind of deferred to others, as opposed to those who stepped, would step out and say, you know what, I'm great. And and I own that, and I want other people to recognize it. That's that's fascinating. I think yes, um, I hadn't had anyone bring it to me in that perspective, exactly to that point. But um, I've experienced that in speaking to people about the cultural implications of the imposter experience, because um, there are some messaging in certain cultures uh, that could certainly speak to that. So, for example, if you come up from a cultural background where uh, maybe humble beginnings, you know, like immigrant parents, where immigrant parents who came into this country and didn't have the opportunities that uh, that we do. Now, I'm a first generation um, born here from my family. My, my mother is an immigrant. And so um, some of the opportunities that maybe weren't available to her are available to me as a as a American citizen. Now, um, so when I've spoken to people from cultural backgrounds similar to, similar to mine, they had their parents who worked in the farms, who were cleaning houses, were gardeners, you know, waitresses, things like that, working really, really hard. So when they see their children who have these opportunities ahead of them because they were born here, they encourage them like, yes, go out and do that because I worked in the field and did all that I had to do to provide for you. And it's, it, it's important to me for you to be great. So go do that, you know, but then there are some cultural experiences that deter that they'll say, Oh, don't, don't dream too big. Mm. You know, we don't want you to, we don't want you to be disappointed. Exactly. You know, just, exactly. Just, uh, take what you can get, be happy with it. It's a comfortable life. At least you're, you know, you got a roof over your head and, and food on the table. That's, that's enough. You know, just be happy. And it's, they mean well. They're not trying to be bubble busters. But when you see great people that you look up to now and you see opportunities and you see the brilliance that you yourself carry, it's like, man, do I do something or do I just sit back? 
So it's that inter inter dialogue with yourself, you know, because a lot of people are perfectly happy being where they are in a sense of complacency. And other people want to do more, but they have to get over the in, the negative internal rhetoric that they've been brought up with. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, because I've experienced it very, very intensely in my own life. I'm thinking of something uh, in the culture of uh, of religion, for instance, of the Christian religion. Uh-huh. Uh, I have, I was taught the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, if you think about that. If you stand up and you say, you know what, I'm really great at something, I'm passionate about it, I'm excited about it, and I'm not apologetic about it, I'm doing it and I love it, you're not being meek. That's not a meek, that's very bold. Yes. But we were never told that the bold will inherit the earth. (laughs) It's funny. Very true. Uh, I'm a Christian as well, and I read the Bible frequently, so I know exactly what you're saying. And I guess my interpretation of it is, is, you know, I feel that these gifts and talents that we were given um, were God-given, and it is it's incumbent on us to be responsible to fulfill an assignment, whatever that may be, because there's a purpose and there's an assignment. And our purpose is to be here and be good people, be good to one another, encourage one another, be witnesses to each other's groups, just be be a, a child of God and recognize that everyone else is a child of God, right? Mm-hmm. But, but uh, um, as far as an assignment, you know, you could have an assignment and they, that assignment could evolve over time. And if your assignment is to step, step out and do something with the, your platform, with your experience, um, and still spread the gospel in a way, you're still spreading goodness, you're still spreading cheer, you're still spreading love and forgiveness and empathy using that assignment. And I believe that when God gives you an assignment, he's going to give you the tools, the resources, the support, and and the creativity to see this assignment through. So, I mean, whether that you could still be meek in that assignment but while being bold with the fact that I'm doing this because I trust God to push me through. Well, that's a wonderful way to um, to tell the story to yourself so that you can feel good about it. Yes, yes. And I feel good about it, too, when I see people being encouraged, when I see people being freed from some of the some of the thoughts that they've carried about themselves and and giving themselves permission to be excited about the future. Exactly. I do, too. I'll never forget the first time I heard and saw Muhammad Ali chant, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. And I didn't understand it. At that point in my life, I looked at it and said, wow, what an arrogant guy. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe that he has the audacity to do that. And it was only much later on when I began to learn about the man that he was doing it like um, an affirmation. It was important for him to do that because he had to speak the belief into himself so that he could perform at the level that he did. Ah, yeah, I get that. I mean, certainly positive reinforcement starts with yourself, right? So that's what he was doing. He was just kind of inviting you into his experience while he did it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he sure did. And good for him that he did. Now, what when did you become aware of your own? imposter syndrome how did it manifest itself well i um i struggled with feeling like i was really making an impact or that i was 
really as great as I was being told. You know, like I, I was uh, coming up in the corporate world in the logistics industry. Um, I carry a certain uh, list of, ta- of skill sets that uh, allowed me to be successful. So, you know, things like t- proper time management, able to multitask, uh, good with timelines, budgets, things like that, you know. So I had an organizational culture type of skill set that allowed me to thrive. And so I thrived and I got promoted and I had great reviews and the merit increases came and opportunities to be involved in projects and travel to represent the organization. All these things were happening, um, but I still always felt like I was crashing the party, like I didn't really belong. And I thought that I was there because some other exterior uh, factor, like maybe they because I'm the only uh, Latin a female in the leadership role in the leadership team of, of the company. So of course they throw me in there just to show that, look, we're being diverse, you know? So I thought it was because they were trying to give it a, you know, give a woman an opportunity so that they aren't uh, being chauvinistic or uh, some other exterior motive other than the fact that I've earned it, you know? And so I always excused my, my accolades as being somebody else doing me a favor and so when you feel that way, you can feel like a fraud. And I, for a while, I couldn't coin the phrase because I was like, what is it? I didn't feel depressed. I, I didn't feel like I had low self-esteem because depression and low self-esteem um, usually result in you not going after achievement. You know, they actually are conducive with you staying small. But I kept kept pushing and kept pushing, but I always had this negative thought behind it. So I was like, what is it? And then I read Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And in her book, she talked about the imposter syndrome. And it, it gave me the terminology. Said, yes, this is it. And so I started to do the research. And I carried it with me as a way to try to get a seat at the table. You know, like I have to work through this because I'm getting opportunities and I should be able to sit in those opportunities confidently um, and not allow this negative internal rhetoric to be a part of my experience. Um, and so but but the problem was I have I was quickly becoming a corporate burnout. I was working way too much, um, even if I wasn't physically at work, I was mentally at work. 80% of my identity was in my career and the 20% had to be divvied out between everything else. So my family, my marriage, my friends, you know, my, my, my parents, my grandmother, like everyone else just got what was left over of that with 20% and they had to share it. And in that 20%, I never took care of myself. So that's how I was becoming a burnout. I was exhausted. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't taking care of my body. Uh, I just, I just, felt that all the validation that was going to help me to survive these thoughts was at work. And wow. so, yeah. And I, I realized that I couldn't keep on this way. It wasn't sustainable. My body started to show signs of exhaustion and distress. My hair was falling out, broke out in hives, it's not sleeping well, migraines, weight gain, weight loss, you know, it was just, my body was telling me this couldn't persist, you know, and so I, I asked God, like, God, what can I do? I need, I need a change. I want to continue to grow and evolve in my career, but I need to slow down, which is kind of fun. It's counterintuitive. So it's like, you're asking God, I want more, but I want to do less. (laughs) It's just silly, right? So I got, I thought there's, there's no, the only way that's even possible is through him. 
So I prayed and this opportunity came to me to leave my corporate my corporate job that I was I was at for 12 years and take on a different role within the logistics industry working from home with no direct reports. Um and I thought, wow, I really I get to learn about sales now. I had done everything in the logistics field up until that point except for sales and software integration. And so sales was something I hadn't done. And I and the person who brought me in is somebody that I had known for years and he's like, I, I trust you. I can teach you the sales stuff. I said, okay, great. He took me under his wing, taught me everything he knew. And he's like, I just, you know, you can work from home. I said, really? And so, <laughs> and how many direct reports will I have? Like, oh, none. It's just you. And so all the stress that I carried with leading people and, and juggling work, and it just all came to a head here. And taking this role freed up my time enough for me to say, okay, now that things have slowed down, I can start to do the internal work. So that's what I started doing. And that was three years ago. I started oh, meditating, prayer, um, all that stuff. Okay, now that's fascinating. What I would love to know is, did the voice that was telling you that you weren't good enough and that you were a fraud get louder as you started to become more successful? Yes. Ah. Yes. And... What did you do to change that story? Well, I had to I had to start to, to realize that the people on the outside of me wouldn't aren't they don't have the power to quiet these voices because they have been telling me how wonderful I am and how proud they are and how all that and it didn't, it didn't matter. It, I realized I need to change what I say to me. And so I had to break down my thought pattern. And I started by reading regularly, praying regularly, journaling. And um, books have been such a freeing space for me because it helps me create a new level of mastery by changing my pattern. So I started with the basics. Um, I picked up The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And that book just, it, 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 what it does is it invites an opportunity for you to reduce the amount of suffering that you have internally with the, just the thought patterns, then the, the anxiety and the second guessing and, you know, how you perceive your experience in this world. And that started, that started to change. I started to give better uh, awareness to how I speak to myself about myself. The four agreements I know very well. Be impeccable with your word. What's the next one? Don't make assumptions. Don't take anything personally. And do your best. Always mm. do your best. It's uh, It sounds almost too easy and too simple. And yet, that book and its philosophy are profound. They sure are. And I, oh, it, it's something that you have to constantly work at it. I still go back periodically just to re-engage the messaging in case I ever falter. You know, if I ever find myself going back to the certain thought patterns that I know now don't serve me. So especially like the, the don't make assumptions one, that's a girl. That one was a game changer for me. Well, you, what's, what I love about that one is that if you think about it, assumptions are stories. We're interpreting an event or a circumstance, 
something that somebody says, and we make an assumption, well, that means we're creating a narrative about it. And often we're doing it in a way that takes our power away. We're giving our power away by making negative assumptions. Yes, agreed. And that that's what it is. We assume that everyone is somehow seeing the, the holes in our in ourselves that we see. Exactly. It's wonderful. Now, you mentioned the book that got you started. It was by Cheryl Sandberg. And the name of the book? Lean In. Lean In. Yes. She's the CFO of um, Facebook. Ah, wonderful. That's another one on my list that I'm going to have to read. <laughs> it's, it's a great read. So... It became more intense. You began now. Were there any? Did you take any personal development courses? Were there any thought leaders that influenced you in a very positive way? Oh gosh, too many to, to list, but I'll give you. So some of the, I like to call it the mechanical work, <laughs> but just some of the mechanics that I did to try to uh, reframe my experience. I did do the work with emo, and I continue to do the emotional intelligence 2.0 work. So I, I took my Myers-Briggs, I did my strength finders, I've done a disc analysis. So I looked at the, the data, you know, to see where I landed and where I needed to work on so that I couldn't be less and less socially anxious about my imposter experience. Um, so that more did some internal work as well as external. But as far as thought work through my book reading and journaling, I mean, the people that have poured into me, of course, Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, through his uh, books, uh, The Four Agreements and The Mastery of Love. Uh, but a big influence in my growth has been uh, Miss Iyanla Van Zant from the show Iyanla Fix My Life. Say, uh, slow down. Say that again, please. Iyanla Van Zant. How do you spell the first word? Uh, I-Y-A-N-L-A. Iyanla. Last name Van Zant, V A N Z A N T. And the work that she does, uh, what was it, a book you said? She's written a lot of books, but she has a show called Iyanla Fix My Life. And so she's a spiritual um, uh, minister and healer, and she is able to help people break through some of the most um, difficult emotional. Uh, deterrence of their lives, you know, trauma, fear, anxiety, uh, depression, all that stuff. So she's watching her work has really, I mean, I've watched her for years and I actually keep a notebook. I write down her little nuggets of wisdom and I incorporate them in how I work with myself and work with clients. Cause I have to remember that these are people, you know, and career success is only one component of life. There's still families and marriages and households to consider. Mm -hmm. Can you identify uh, the biggest obstacle? I would let's let's call it the biggest monster that you had to to slay, the biggest dragon you had to kill in order to really step into your own and overcome this imposter syndrome and own your own brilliance. I well. For those who've read, who haven't read my book, there's a chapter in there called My Story. And it's a, it's a, not called My Story, I'm sorry. It's called Trying to Fix Everyone. Um, I uh, 
come from a background where my, my parents got divorced when I was uh, very young. My, my father was an alcoholic, abusive uh, womanizer. So all, all the great parts of the package rolled into one, right? <laughs> and so as a kid, I watched my mother being disrespected and being abused. And um, it was hard to understand why that was a reality for us and how how that could be perceived as love. Like, is it, how is this love, right? And then my father left shortly after the divorce. So I had to deal with a lot of uh, abandonment issues and I didn't know at the moment how to deal with it. So I did what everyone else around me did. Everyone else, uh, everyone else around me, my mother and my mother's siblings, my grandmother, everyone was angry because they, they just felt like anger seemed to just mask the pain. So I just got angry. And anytime I feel a sense of abandonment or feel a sense of being invisible to somebody, I get angry. And, you know, I was dealing with, with my, with my pain of abandonment with anger as a child. And I, and I dealt with it that way for very, very long up until I got married at the age of 23. If I ever felt my husband was being uh, dismissive of me or wasn't listening to me, I would show my, my hurt with anger. And then as I grew up as well, my teenage years, I got right getting out of high school into college, my brother, unfortunately, um, struggled with addiction, dealt with a lot of demons in his early life. And, you know, by the age of 14, he was already outside of our home living in placement through the state because he had, you know, already had a rap sheet at the age of 14. He eventually ended up in prison. And so my mother's heart was just broken because my brother was struggling. And so I just wanted to fix everything. I, I remember even as a child when my dad left, it really pushed me to want to do well. I wanted to be a good student. I wanted to be on the on. I made sure I was on the honor roll. If I was on a team, I wanted to be the captain. I just wanted to excel at everything because in my young mind, I figured my dad would hear about how great I was through the grapevine, through the family members. There's somebody would tell him like, oh my gosh, you don't even know Michelle. She's doing so great. She's on the honor roll. Did you hear she got into college? She's getting her bachelor's. Like I just thought somehow, some way my father would hear about my success and want to come back and be a great man for me. And so that, because he wouldn't come back, I just thought, okay, I got to keep working harder. So this is my way of trying to fix him and fix the marriage, fix him not being in my life and then compound that with my brother's um, uh, addiction and then getting imprisoned at the age of 18. Um, I, I thought, how can I fix my mom's pain? My mom was devastated. She's already dealing with the pain from the divorce and the abuse and then this, you know, and, and she's just broken. I just wanted to fix her so much that I just thought, okay, I got to do better. So I, I got married and had a beautiful wedding and started having children and bought a house. And it was like, look, mom, see, look, mom, I'm doing great. Like, you know, you're, cause she used to really just get down on herself about, I'm such a terrible parent. Look at my son, look at his struggles. Like I really screwed up this parenting thing and I didn't want her to carry that guilt. So I just thought I need to be great so that she could wake up every morning feeling like, you know what, I did something right. Look at my daughter. But no amount of success, Lewis, none of it changed her heart. Her heart continued to remain broken. And, and I also thought that by me being great, it would inspire my brother David to want to do better. 
you know, like, look, if my sister can do these things, I can, I can get off of these drugs and I can live a productive life. And, and it never, it just didn't manifest that way. And so you, I felt like an imposter. I felt like, well, I'm doing all these great things, but it's not changing the people that I want to help. It's not fixing these things that I thought it would fix. So I, the breakthrough that you asked me just now, what, what was the big monster? I just had to realize that this is not mine to fix. These problems are not my burden to bear, to, to bear. These are God's issues. I need to release them to God and let him get the glory for what's going to change. You know, like my father having issues with alcoholism and, and abuse and being an infant and uh, being um, unfaithful to his wife. That, those are problems or issues that are his own demons that probably have been inside him before I was even born. My yeah. mother, my mm-hmm. mother staying in, a, in an abusive relationship and us being a part of that. Also, her own demons has nothing to do with me. You know, my brother falling into addiction, his demons, you know, him landing in prison. He landed in prison. I don't need to be in there with him, you know. And so I realized and my mother, her broken heart is not my burden. It's not mine to fix. She has to do the work. She has to seek out guidance. She has to seek out um, help from a higher purpose, a higher, you know, what good does it do for her to be healed and say, I owe it all to my daughter. That's not great. You know, I don't want that. I want her to say, you know, thanks God, because of God, I'm standing here today and he gets all the glory. And so that's more important, but a lot for a long while, that was my monster. Like, why is my brother still behind bars? Why is my mom not proud of me? Does she not see me? Why is her heart still broken? And where is my dad? How come he's not here? Like, clearly I'm not that great if he is not inspired to come back and be a good father to me. So that was my monster. And I had to realize, you know what? (laughs) This is not mine. I had to turn my direction to what was my responsibility, which is my marriage and my two children and the career that I've worked so hard to build. If I've been building this career and I have these people to lead and this charge to, to, to push forward with, that is my assignment. It must have been a great relief. Uh, like, I mean, like, you know, like putting down a huge burden once you finally realize that. Oh, my. It was life altering. And, mm. and it actually made it. It started the conversation to make it OK to to believe in, in my brilliance and be OK with it. Because it's like, OK, just because of my my success didn't fix all of these other things doesn't mean that it won't fix more. In other beautiful. places. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. So what would you say, how does a person know if they have the syndrome or if they're really an imposter? What's the difference between <laughs> the real ones and the ones who are just suffering from the syndrome? Well, the real ones are, you'll, they'll know it because they have, they have the certifications. They've, they've gone out and gotten the higher education. These are bachelors, masters, PhDs. These are people who have the experience, who have done great work. You know, the, the, the work that they've done to prepare and position themselves to perform these great tasks has been completed. The imposters are these people who, um, haven't done the work, but they just want the, they want the role just so that they can say they have it. They don't, <laughs> you know, like they just, they want the easy street. They, uh, they feel entitled because they, you know, they think I can do it, but you haven't done the work 
to get there. Um, it's sort of a, a, a symptom of feeling like, well, why do I have to prove to you? I think I'm great. So just let me do this. I want, I want the high, like I, I've actually had younger people tell me, well, yeah, I want what you got going on. Well, it's like, it took a lot to get here guys. Okay. Please understand that I paid my dues and I did the work. You know, I went from, you know, kneeling on the floor to file paperwork to now having the career that I have. And it didn't happen overnight, you know? And so the, the people who struggle with the imposter syndrome know the road work, but still with all the world work and everything that they've done and all, all the signs around them to show them how competent they are, they still struggle with feeling deserving of their achievement. Right. I mean, now I guess what I meant was not the real, uh, those who have really achieved, but those, if you've done all the work and you're still feeling that crazy negative inner voice, how do you distinguish between that and the fact that maybe you're really an imposter? <laughs> well, I would, I would question you. I would challenge it. I would tell them you're not an imposter. Let's show me where your degrees are. Where are they? Where are they? Are they hang up in your office? Okay. Well, let's look at your last employee reviews. Those last, let's look at the last three, or maybe the most most current project you completed. Looking at all of this, I don't think you're an imposter at all. I challenge you on that. I think you sit, you're struggling with imposter syndrome, but you're not an imposter. Look at the work you've done. Okay. Now, how is the imposter syndrome different for men and women? So with they both experience it, but women experience it more because um, there's, gosh, it's so many. So number one, men are just a little bit more um, graceful to themselves. They, they show more grace to themselves for their humanity. Men, when they make a mistake, they're like, okay, I made a mistake. Duly noted. I won't do that again. Like you're, they allow themselves that humanity. Like I am human. I am going to make a mistake. I'm, I'm going to make a bad judgment call here and there. Right. They, they, they analyze it, they own it and they move on. Women have a more difficult time moving on from the mistakes uh, because the messaging that we receive is that we need to be great at everything. And with it, with, uh, with women, it's not just work. We have to be good at being a good wife, a good mother, a good sister, a good friend. We have to keep our house in order, cook the meals on time, make sure the laundry's done, keep up with all the school stuff with the kids, and try to have a social life on top of it. So, I mean, there's just so much. And so with men, like, okay, if, if you are the breadwinner of your home, you're expected to be do well at work. So if you're doing great at work, you have a little more leeway at home. You may you may be not as um, responsible for rearing the children because you're the breadwinner and the wife takes care of everything else, right? So your confidence comes from you doing well at work. Meanwhile, one, a woman, work is just part of it because as a woman, you're not, the messaging is you're not allowed to drop the ball anywhere. You got to keep all the balls in the air, juggling it with ease because the minute a little bit of a sweat starts to show or you drop the ball here and there, it invokes shame, and so that's why women struggle with it the most. May I challenge you as a Absolutely. man? Absolutely. Yes. Well, could it be that the perception is that men have an easier time with it because of the way 
men, are, I believe, are better at hiding their feelings. So if, <laughs> yes. so if they're experiencing the imposter syndrome, they may be able to mask it so well that people won't know. Because a lot of men that I know who are very successful struggle with it. And they struggle with it pretty intensely. Because, see, you were describing, okay, they don't have certain responsibilities, but I think that it has less to do with the external things that you have to accomplish than with that inner voice that tries to negate everything that you do, whether you're doing well or not. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you, are, you are right. Men are less vocal about their feelings. And so it could be that the uh, research shows a less of a tendency for men because men have not been want, wanting to participate in the research data because then it requires them to speak about it. Mm. So it's very common that the very common frame framework as far as with men, you know, when it comes to talking about vulnerability, it's a uh, it's a little bit harder for them, right? Mm, but mm-hmm. but but I don't disqualify it. I think men. Um, I think men are actually probably going to experience it even more now because they're such high powered women and it could emasculate them. You know, when you see a woman can come up and do well for herself and there's a lot of women out there that carry this um, sort of uh, badge of honor. Like I don't need any, I don't need anyone. I can do it on my own. You know, you hear it in the music, <laughs> you know, and, um, and that's, I mean, it's great. Women empowerment is, is essential. You know, but I feel that some it could uh, put a damper on what a man can bring as far as value to a relationship. <laughs> well, as far as I'm concerned, I can't wait for the women to just take it all. They could just <laughs> take it, <laughs> take it all on, and I'm going to say, "Go, go, girl! I'm going to go out and pl- I'm going to go out and play." <laughs> oh i know my husband jokes about that all the time he's like so you let me know when i can quit my job and now i can just golf every day <laughs> there you go there you go and i'll be right there with him <laughs> that's awesome yeah I, th- I think there's room for it all really and 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 the lovely part is that as long as everyone deals with their with their stuff you know the imposter syndrome and and um understanding their competencies and and figure out what makes them tick you get to decide what your dynamic is. You know, every household doesn't have to be the same. You could be the breadwinner or he can be the breadwinner or you're both doing it together. Or, you know, it, you make it, you get to make your own rules. So just do it. <laughs> so what tips would you give to a person who recognizes they've got imposter syndrome? What are the first steps they should take to begin to overcome it? Well, um, I mentioned this in my book, but I think it's important to understand. I, co- I coined this acronym called the Yukon, and it stands for your unique cocktail of needs. Because, every, you know, the imposter uh, experience um, has five different competencies. So depending on what your competency type is or your unique, because there's five of them. And most people have a mix of two or three. Like they'll say, oh, I'm this one and this one, or I'm a mix of these two. And so that's your cocktail. That's your unique cocktail of needs. Once you understand what your Yukon is, then you need to dive into your what your triggers are and then change the thought, do the work to change the thought patterns of those triggers. And what would you say, are, are there a set of common triggers that come up for people? 
Well, it depends on the competency. So for example, the first competency is the perfectionist and the perfectionist, they tend to focus on how something is done. They have an extremely high expectation of themselves and they tend to set the bar pretty high, like crazy high. So when they don't achieve their goal at the high level expectation that they set for themselves, they tend to experience harsh inner criticism and shame and which can take days to shake off. So for someone who has that perfectionist uh, competency type and their experience, a trigger could be um, uh, when you are working on, on a project and you're behind schedule or you haven't met certain deadlines, um, that could start to trigger your mentality. Like, okay, this, this is supposed to be on time, uh, perfectly and uh, perfectly without any errors, and I'm already behind the ball. So now that trigger starts to show up. So that that's one example. The natural genius is another competency. Um, you expect to have the natural genius expects to have just natural abilities, an easy flow of intelligence that will result in being able to approach a task or a goal with with the utmost of ease. So to them, a trigger is if they step into a position, a role, or a project where they don't feel it's just so easy. Like, oh, this is hard. So you have to read something. So, oh, I have to train. Like, I have to ask questions. This will invoke shame because they feel if it doesn't come naturally to them, then they're they're not, this is not for them. They're not cut out for it. They've made a mistake. And so they invoke shame. So it depends on what you consider confidence because that would be, then would identify your trigger. Mm-hmm. Very, very good. I think people should definitely read this book. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I am going to provide to your readers at the end a link to my website for your readers specifically that will uh, give them some perks that they can use for free to help understand what their Yukon is. Wonderful. I like that. Thank you very much. Of course. Now, you mentioned a whole bunch of books. Do you have a favorite one that you haven't mentioned yet? Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. One of my favorites is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. By Brene. Oh, yeah. Brene Brown. Yeah. She's wonderful. Yeah. She, I love her. Yeah. Yeah. She inspires a lot of people. It's called Daring Greatly. Yes. I mean, I've, re I've read everything she's ever written, but this one's my favorite. And how about a favorite quote? And it's actually a quote in the book. That's why I love it. She, uh, she actually named the book after a quote by Theodore Roosevelt, and I included this quote in my own book as well. Um, she calls it the arena, uh, but it goes like this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Wow, I love that. And I actually have heard that before. And it is I'm so glad you reminded me of its existence. It's a powerful quote. Absolutely, and that, that's uh, it's it's really driven me to understand why. For those of us who are struggling with the imposter syndrome, 
when we know and can help one another, we understand what it takes to show up in the arena, to show up every day and do what you have to do and get those projects done and lead that team and write that book, complete that PhD. We understand what it takes to be in that arena and we wouldn't dare sit, sit on the sidelines and mock you because unless we're sitting here with the same dust and tears and sweat, no one has any reason to say anything because at least if you fail, you fail while daring greatly. Beautiful, beautiful. If you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? Intolerance. Mm. Yep, I agree. It's a big one. It is. It's just we, it's intolerance feels ignorance, which feels hate. And, and it's just, it has no place in this world. There's just, there's too much, um, we're too much of a melting pot. There's so much differences. Uh, but really the common thing about every culture and every background, every religion, every, any color skin is love. So if we just all walked in love and be more tolerant to one another, we would, we would, need less of a reason to look for what what makes us different and instead just focus on what makes us the same. Beautifully put. How can people contact you? Uh, go to my website, www.michelle, which is M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, middle initial M for Martha, and Gomez, G-O-M-E-Z.com. And I will make sure to give you a link that is specific to your uh, listeners. For you storytellers, it'll be www.michellemgomez.com slash change. And that'll be just for you guys. Beautiful. Thank you. Any final thoughts? You know, I, I really hope that with this movement that I've started that I create a space for people to um, stand in their brilliance without fear of being arrogant, being perceived as cocky, like you said. I mean, we all know what it's like to be in the midst of somebody who is arrogant and cocky. And I am a firm believer that those sentiments are fueled by insecurity. So this is why I don't want the imposter syndrome to be viewed as an insecurity, but more of a hindrance that can be overcome. So that when you do stand in your brilliance, you're not arrogant, you're not cocky, you're just being you and you're okay with that. Thank you so much. You have contributed a lot to our storytellers today. And um, you are an extremely articulate and inspired person. Thank you so much for having me and, and for even doing this. I think the work you're doing here is important. And I appreciate you stepping out and doing this yourself. Thank you, I received that. And thank you once again, storytellers, for tuning in today and spending this time with me and Michelle Gomez. I feel so blessed to interview people like Michelle, whose intelligence and passion and clarity elevate how we feel and elevate the people that they touch. And today, Michelle has touched me, and I know that she has touched you. And let yourself feel and accept, fully embrace some of the greatness that she sprinkled on you. Pay this forward. 
make sure that people know that they can hear this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Rush to the website and grab the gift that I have created for you. The ebook, totally free, called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. You know, when Michelle talked about the power of books to help us achieve freedom, I got goosebumps. And I want to remind you that our sponsor is Audible and that you can take and choose any audio book of your choice absolutely free and have one month of a free trial to all of Audible service by simply going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. In terms of what to think about next week, I think it's very clear. Look inside and identify your own imposter syndrome. And if you say, well, I don't really have that going on, I'm going to say, really? I think we all experience it to a degree. Listen to yourself talk. Discover how your imposter syndrome is limiting you, how it's suggesting that you are small, how it's making you feel unimportant, how it's stealing your power and denying you your birthright, which is to step into your greatness and acknowledge your own brilliance. And to help you achieve that freedom and expansion in your life, begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.